All right, good morning once again. Um, my name is uh, David. People call me DC here. Uh, one of the pastors on staff. Um, is my mic location okay? It's okay. Um, thank you for worshiping with us, worshiping with us once again. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Renovation by Grace. And the point that we're trying to get across is it is grace that truly changes and transforms us. Uh, it's not our own uh, power or our own will uh, that can produce uh, lasting change, but it is grace. Um, it is an experience of an encounter with God's unmerited favor upon us through Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Actually, in this, this message that grace is what transforms us is what makes Christianity unique than any other religions out there. Because uh, any other religions will say that you got to perform. Uh, you got to work for your salvation. Uh, you got to live a good life. you got to make sure you're good, we outweighs the bad, and so God will accept you. Uh, so what Christianity does and what the gospel does is it flips it upside down. It says that God loves and accepts you in Jesus Christ, and therefore our lives are lived out in a response to that amazing grace. Does that make sense? So salvation isn't a means, or a righteousness isn't a means to salvation, uh, but it is a product of salvation. Does that make sense? We've got to understand that distinction. Uh, righteousness, righteous living, good living, isn't a means to salvation, but it is a product of salvation, of God's love and his mercy upon us. And it is a free gift of grace. And so the Christian life is birthed by grace, in grace. But at the same time, grace is what allows us to continue to transform. And the goal for transformation is Jesus Christ, that we become more and more like him. And so in one sense, the Christian is already transformed. We are already transformed. We are sanctified. We are set apart. And this happens when we trust and believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation. What happens is we are born again. It's this idea of regeneration. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we talked about the heart and the mind, that God gives us a new heart and he gives us a new mind uh, so that we can know God intimately and to love God back as we receive his love. Right? So in one sense, the Christian is already transformed. But in another sense, the Christian is always transforming, always transforming. Because although we are a new creation, now we are learning what it means to live in an environment of grace. Right? We have a new identity. I'm sorry, I'm a little sick, so I'm going to be uh, wiping my nose every once in a while. But as we have a new identity, we are in a new environment trying to learn what it means to be saved and redeemed. Right? And so uh, for a lot of you guys, you guys know that I'm originally from Seattle. Born and raised. I'm a true Seattleite. And so you might be saying, hey, DC, you enjoy this rain, right? No, I'm actually sick and tired of it. <laughs> the past uh, few days have been pretty brutal as far as rain goes. Uh, but I'm now an LAer or a Southern Californian. But uh, when I moved down here, there are so many things I had to learn about uh, the traffic laws of LA. It's not the same. You think that every, everyone drives like uh, LAers, but it's not true. Uh, the laws are so different. Um, uh, one thing that really freaked me out in the first week of driving in LA, this was years and years ago, uh, 
was the, the sovereignty of motorcyclists. Like in Seattle, we don't see a lot of motorcycles because it, it rains all the time. But here, you see them all over the place. And, and um, I, I thought I was going to kill a motorcyclist the first time I was driving because they're just so, they have sovereignty on the freeways. They can go wherever they want. In traffic, they just go right in between the cars. And it really freaked me out. Right? The laws are different. Another thing that really puzzled me was in Seattle, when, when, there's, when we see a yellow light, we actually stop. <laughs> right? In LA, what happens is when it's yellow light two, and then it turns red, two cars can go. You guys, this is crazy. It's so unique to LA. So I frustrated people because right when I saw a yellow light, actually I would just stop there. People would be hungry. I'm like, what's going on? The laws are different, right? Someone from Seattle moving down to LA, I have to learn what it means to be uh, living, living in uh, uh, Southern California, in the LA life, especially with traffic. And it was extremely frustrating trying to learn what this new life was about in LA. In the same way, you gotta imagine, we're, like, it was a two-state two move, right? I drove down from Oregon and it came to California. I'm on the same coast. And I had a hard time adjusting to, to life in Southern California. Imagine the Christian life. How drastic and dramatic of a transformation that is. You were spiritually dead, but now you're spiritually alive. You were once an enemy of God, but now God is your father. Your, your life was ridden with shame and guilt, but in Christ and in the gospel, there's no more condemnation. You are free uh, can you imagine the, the dramatic and drastic conf- uh, transformation a Christian goes, uh, undergoes from a non-believer to a believer? And so it takes adjustments. It takes time for us to know what it means to live in light of God's grace. And so the Christian life begins at grace. That's the beginning. But then it needs to progress deeper into grace. Does that make sense? It starts with grace and we don't move on from grace. No, we go deeper into the realities of grace and what that means. And that's why Paul says, uh, he prays for the uh, Christians in Ephesus. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Being rooted and grounded in love. So we never move away from grace. That's, that's the beginning. That's our foundation. But that same grace is actually the framework in which our lives need to be built up. Right? Grace is what transforms us. And so the question that we need to ask is, once again, why is it so difficult for us to change? Why is it so hard for us to transform into the likeness of Christ? Why are the same sins plaguing our lives and crippling our our walks with Christ? Why is this so? Why am I not seeing any progress in my life? And so for many of us here, we're we're frustrated because we've been going to church our entire lives. And, and you've been hearing the same gospel over and over again. And, and you've tried to grow and, and change, but you're not seeing any progress at all. Why is this the case? 
See, here's the Christian challenge. The Christian has undergone a dramatic transformation, but the fact of the matter is we still have our physical bodies. We still live in a fallen and broken world. And we do have an enemy that is that, that his whole agenda is to try to remove us further and further away from the grace of Jesus Christ. So we're still, although we've undergone a spiritual transformation, we still have our physical bodies, we live in a fallen world, and we have an enemy that's trying to remove us from God's grace, to create distance from the truth of the gospel. And so one explanation the Bible offers us and why it's so difficult for us to change is this idea of the old self, former passions, former loyalties, old allegiances that we still have, right? So for, yeah, once again, for example, there are certain things about Seattle that you just won't be able to get out of me. Uh, there are loyalties that I have to Seattle that I just cannot as of right now, like, just let go. And that is, of course, the Seattle Seahawks, uh, my old college, the Huskies, and if we do get a, a basketball team, the Supersonics. Like, and so people are trying to get me on board with the Lakers, LA Rams, USC. I'm like, uh, no, I'm not there yet. I can't root for those teams because I'm still very loyal, and my allegiance is still to the Seattle sports teams. It's just so hard for me to root for another team, right? It's these old allegiances that we have. In the same way, the old self, the old nature, the sinful disposition that we had, our old loyalties, they're, they're still there in our bodies, in our lives. And this world appeals to that old self. We still have an appetite for those things. And so... Over and over again, more than we want, the old self rears his ugly head in our lives, doesn't it? Through different circumstances, maybe in the midst of conflict, difficulties, that old self just, just keeps coming out. And that is why Paul, in the same letter to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 4, verse 22 to 24, this is his command to us and his encouragement to put off your old self, which belongs to the former matter of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul is calling us to and asking us to do is continue as the old self makes its way out into our lives to shed that old self, to put it off, to take it off over and over again. This is an exercise of the Christian life to take off the old self. So it's true. Old habits die hard, right? The old self is so hard to kill. And that's what I want to talk about today. And I know in the bulletin it says renovation of the mind. That is a typo. It is a renovation of our habits. I want to talk about our habits, our old self, a thing that constantly nags at our Christian life. See, one of the greatest obstacles in our renovation and being transformed into the image of Christ is habitual sin, the habits of the old self. 
it keeps coming back and it keeps invading our gospel identity. And so if we're going to see change in our lives, these old habits, the old self needs to be put to death. Three questions I want to answer, ask and answer for us today. What do habits reveal? Is the first question. The second one is, what impact do they have? And lastly, how can we change them? How can we change them? What do they reveal? What impact do they have? And how can we change them? So first, what do habits reveal within us? See, not all habits are bad, right? There are good habits, right? And we're, we're thankful for these good habits because I'm sure everyone who woke up this morning, what you do? You, you, you brushed your teeth. I, I thank you for that. Right? I'm sure you're thanking me for that as well. It's a good habit. Looking both ways before you cross the street. I'm t- trying to teach Deacon, my son, this. Right? Look both ways. It's a good habit. Right? Using your blinker. Not everyone in LA does this, but using your blinker. Right? We appreciate that. See, God designed us to be habitual creatures. It's actually within us to develop habits because God created us in a world that has rhythm and patterns. Right? In, in, in the Genesis account, we hear this refrain over and over again after each day of creation, evening and morning, right? evening and morning. And then God created for six days and he rested on the seventh day. Right? There's a rhythm and pattern to life and he created us with the ability to develop habits. Right? And so there are good habits. So what happened then to this ability? Sin. Sin took this ability to develop habits, it twisted, good habits, it twisted and deformed it so that we are now able to develop bad habits. See, one pastor said it this way to understand sin. Sin doesn't create anything new. Think about it. Sin doesn't seek to create anything new in our lives. What sin does, it takes a created thing and it twists and deforms it. It distorts it. And so this is what happens to the God-given ability for us to develop habits, good ones. And therefore, we develop bad habits, self-destructing habits. And therefore, many of us, we struggle with habitual sins. Some of us were habitually angry. Some of us, we are habitually lustful. Some are habitual gossipers. Some are habitual liars, constantly dishonest and untruthful. For others, we are habitually lazy. We don't want to do anything. And there are, there are those who are habitually insecure and anxious. See, most, if not all of us, we have habitual sins that we struggle with. What are they for you today? What are those things that can constantly rear its ugly head in our lives? But more important than what they are, what do they reveal about us? What do they reveal about us? Habitual sins reveal the true object of our worship. The true object of our worship. What we believe will save us. What gives us comfort. What satisfies us. what, What brings meaning into our lives. In other words, habitual sins, what they do is reveal what our idols are. What our idols are. Idols are idols are good things that we've elevated to a God thing. It becomes ultimate in our lives. Habitual sins reveal what those idols are. See, sex is a good thing. Leisure is good. Approval approval of others are good thing is a good thing. But once it consumes our life where we can't live without it, we've made it into a God thing. 
See, in John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman, and he offers living water, everlasting life, right? And then Jesus tells her, hey, go call your husband and bring him here. What does she say? She said, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're with right now is not even your husband. This woman was a habitual adulterer. She sought meaning, significance through the intimacy of other men. Men was her idol. That was the object of her worship, what she truly desired. And so Jesus confronts this habitual sin in her life because she cannot worship both men and Jesus. She can't. See, habitual sin tells us that we have a worship disorder. Instead of worshiping the creator God, we worship temporary created things. And that's what habitual sins reveal about ourselves, that we worship, instead of God, the things that he has created. And so sinful habits reveal that there is a worship disorder in us. These false gods that deliver partially. They satisfy temporarily, but they leave us wanting more. Isn't that true? We just keep going back again and again after these things because it never fills and quenches our thirst. So the question we want to ask is what happens when we keep going back? What happens when we keep going back to that sin over and over again? So what impact does habitual sin have in our lives? See, if our sins continue to go unchecked, it will sear our conscience. It will make us numb. It will build up a callus within our hearts. Right? We, won't, we won't understand and know that this is actually sin. It will just become normal. It will consume us, and it will actually control our lives. How do I know this? Because uh, this is what happened to me. I let sin persist in my life. I let it go unchecked. And what it did, it was turn into a full-fledged addiction. And I mentioned several times in my sermons that I was a former addict. Um, my addiction was gambling. Uh, it, it consumed and, and ruined my life for two years. Uh, it started off as an innocent sin, uh, thinking that it was just a fun activity uh, with my friends. But what eventually, happened, what eventually happened was I couldn't live without it. It, it, it ran my life. It controlled every aspect of my life. And, and the difficult thing about, uh, the troubling thing about a gambling addiction is that uh, there are no physical signs of it. Uh, you, with drugs and alcohol, there, there are visible signs that someone's struggling with those things. But with gambling, it's not. Um, there are other, other, other signs, but it's, it's not as clear as a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction. So uh, I, I went a whole year without anyone finding out. Uh, I let it persist. I gave into it. Uh, I didn't confess it. I did not repent from it. I let it persist in my life, and it ruined and controlled my life. So for an entire year, it went, I, I went um, not getting caught. No one realized this, uh, that I was struggling with this, and, and, it, and it consumed me. And after a while, I couldn't go a day without going to a casino. I just, it, it was just automatic. And when I didn't, I felt like there was something missing. See, the impact of habitual sins is that we become slaves to it. 
You think you have a control over it, but eventually over time it controls you. It overwhelms you. And that is why Paul warns us in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. See, this is still possible for the Christian. Right? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen to him. Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. What does sin do? We can allow sin to reign in our bodies and we can actually obey its every command if we let it. And so many of us, we, we, allow, we allow sin to persist. See, although the, Christian, although the Christian is free from the penalty of sin, our old self, right, we can still invite sin into our lives and we can still subject ourselves to obey its every command. The most dangerous, though, impact of habitual sin is that we forget and we lose sight of God's grace and faithfulness. When you're living in that darkness, when you're living in that sin, you can't help but condemn yourself, feel guilt and shame, and you start to lose sight that God loves you, that his grace is available for you, and that if you ask, he'll, for, he'll forgive you. Peter, one of, the, one of Jesus' apostles and disciples, he identifies one of the reasons why uh, we, we struggle with sin. He calls it nearsightedness, nearsightedness. In 2 Peter verses one, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities, and he's talking about holiness, is so nearsighted that, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We, we forget that we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We forget it all the time, especially when we're in habitual sin. And so my second year of addiction, people started finding out. Uh, they started to, to see that I wasn't around. Uh, and, and by God's grace, through just bizarre coincidences, people, people would catch me. And, and what that did was, was, was it filled my life with shame and guilt. It actually created more distance uh, for me uh, with other people and especially with God. Um, they tried to help. I didn't want it. My family loved me even through it, but I rejected that love. Over and over again, as people discover this, it just, it just shame and guilt just dro drove me away from God's grace. So I isolated myself from everybody I grew a hatred for myself. I grew a hatred for God. I fell into a deep depression. On drives back from the casinos, I'll contemplate on how I would kill my life or kill myself. It, it, it was one of the darkest places uh, that I've ever been. And, and that's the impact that habitual sin can have in our lives. And, and many of us, we use habitual sins as Christianese to addictions. Many of us, we have it. And we're addicted to these things. And the lie and the impact that Satan has in our addictions is, is to say that you're beyond help. God can't love you. His grace cannot restore you. And, and, so, and so this is what happened to me. Um, 
I distanced myself from God's grace when his grace was so readily available to restore and renew me. I was hopeless, and I felt that there was no way out. Friends, is that you today? And if uh, statistics are correct, I'm sure many of us, we struggle with addictions, whether it's to pornography, whether it's to gambling, um, whether it's to dietary addictions, and I've encountered so many sisters that have dietary addictions where, where they have to, to throw up over and over again to feel better about themselves. Are you hopeless? Are you depressed? Are you helpless in your sins? Have you believed in the enemy's lie, as I have, that you are beyond help, that God's grace cannot restore you? Have you given up? Have you stopped fighting against sin? I want to assure us today and encourage us once again, and I'm standing as a witness to this, that we are not beyond God's help. We are not but beyond God's grace. There is hope for change. And so habitual sin tells us that we have a worship disorder. Secondly, habitual sins that persist warps our identity. It causes us to forget God's grace and love. So lastly, how can we change then? What hope do we have to change our addictions? What hope do we have to change our bad habits? Uh, If you are here today and you have a serious addiction, uh, there is professional help. There's actually real resources out there to help you. Uh, if that's you and you want help, you can, you can come and talk to me. And one of the redeeming purposes of my addiction is now I'm able to help others with, through it. Uh, I will cry with you. I will journey with you through it. And, and I've had, in the past seven, eight years of ministry that I've done, I, I was able to journey with those that, that struggle with addictions. But it's, if it's serious, there is help out there. There are resources and places you can go to get help. Allow me to share a few ways of not how to change your habits. First thing is sheer willpower. Uh, I, I think we give our wills too much credit. That I could just will myself to overcome these habitual sins. And one thing that comes along with willpower is self-discipline. Self-dis- self-discipline will not help you to get rid of these habitual sins. Just, just that I will just stop. I will try to create all these barriers, and, and I'm just going to discipline myself to think of other things, to try to keep myself occupied. It's not going to work. It's not. Because we have so little control over our lives, and there's so many things that trigger habitual sins in our lives. See, habits by nature are automated. It's like second nature. It's natural, right? That's, that's the whole reason that we have habits is, is to save us effort uh, from doing things in different ways. So how are we going to overcome and how are we going to change something that is so natural to us? Uh, I came up with four steps. Uh, and let me explain to these, uh, explain these four things. First is identify your idol. Identify your idol. Uh, we need to treat the disease and not the symptoms. So if you're just trying to stop the sin, right, stop doing that sin, what you're doing is just dealing with the symptoms and not, you're, not, you're not attacking the disease. 
You have to find out what the sin underneath the sin is. So we got to identify what it is that, that we're truly worshiping, what, what it is that we truly believe will save us and rescue us. And so there are four broad categories of idols that, that most of it will fall into. So all the sins can fall into one of these four broad categories. Uh, comfort, control, power, and approval. I believe these are the four dominant idols probably for all of us. Comfort, control, power, and approval. So our habitual sins exist to appease a God. Habitual sins exist to appease a God in our life, to appease the God of comfort, to appease the God of approval, and to appease the God of power and control. See, it took me years to figure out why I was, I was addicted to gambling. It, it took me a while. It wasn't easy for me to figure out because it wasn't money. I, wasn't, I, 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 I can care less for money. What I figured out was my dominant idol was approval. Now, it's a little bit bizarre that gambling somehow appeases uh, an idol of approval, right? Because I, I, I want people to approve of me. But what I figured out and discovered, and I think P. Mike and my wife can attest to this. It is not the approval of others that I struggle with. It's self-approval. I need, to approve, I need to approve myself. And so what gambling did for me was when I won, it gave me a high. That I, that I won. It, it, it validated my worth. Now, you can see the problem in this because the odds are stacked against us, right, in gambling. The house has always an advantage. And so what happened was, yes, I would win, gave me a high, but more than winning, I would lose. And so I have to keep going back to try to relive that winning moment in my life. And eventually I won and won and won. That wasn't good enough. I had to raise the stakes. I had to. And gambling appeased this God of approval, of self-approval. And that's why I'm so competitive not with others, but with myself. I'm the hardest on myself. What is it for you? You got to identify that idol in your life. The second thing, it's the second step to overcome habitual sin is expose its lies. You got to expose the lies of the sins that we are, that, that, that just consume our lives. Satan is the father of lies. He tempts us by twisting and distorting truth. So how does pornography lie to us? Pornography lies to us saying that you're going to be satisfied. It's going to, it's going to, you're going to experience pleasure. It's going to fulfill you. Now, again, there are elements of truth. But, but what, what the, underneath the superficial truth is a detrimental and life-destructing lie. It doesn't satisfy. Right? You have to keep going back to it again and again and again. And what it does, it, it, it not only destroys your life, but it, it devalues another human being. Pornography is a lie. Success lies to us by saying, if you get that job, if you get that promotion, if you make that much money, you will have security and comfort. It's a lie. Because at any moment, that can be taken away. 
And then what? Hate lies to us by saying that not all people have equal dignity and worth. Hate lies to us. We have to expose the lies of the sins that we are constantly committing over and over again. We got to expose its weaknesses and we got to expose the lies. So first, identify the idols. Second, expose the lies. Thirdly, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself and to your own soul. How does the gospel then satisfy the desires in our pursuits? I'm approved and accepted by God, not based on my performance, but based on Christ. Nothing can change my standing before God. I'm his child. I have comfort and security because in Christ Jesus, I have an inheritance that cannot be taken away. It's secure in Christ Jesus. I can let go of power because Jesus Christ surrendered his own power to die for me. I don't have to be in control over everything because God is in control over my life. You guys know what I'm doing here? Every, every single idol that I mention, the gospel has something to say about it. The gospel fulfills and satisfies these desires. So preach the gospel to yourself. Over and over again, preach it to yourself. Lastly, develop habits of grace. Develop habits of grace. See, as habitual creatures, we can't just simply get rid of habits because what we will do Functionally, is we'll develop new ones. What I'm saying that, what I'm encouraging and challenging us to do is, is to develop habits of grace. Now, this is a term uh, that, that David Mathis, who's, who's one of the executive uh, editors for Desiring God, which is a ministry of John Piper, an amazing pastor and author, he, de- he, he coined this term, habits of grace. We need to replace bad habits with habits of grace. And this is what he says in his book. God's grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. Our God is lavish in his grace. He is free to liberally liberally dispense his goodness without even the least bit of cooperation and preparation on our part. And often he does. But But he also has his regular channels. And we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment. Habits of grace. What habits are habits of grace is discipline of placing ourselves in the pathway of God's grace. Let me say that again. So this is different than self-discipline. These are grace disciplines. What we do when we're habitually in God's grace is we're setting ourselves and we're positioning ourselves in the path of God's grace. One example is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He saw that Jesus was making his way through town. What did he do? He positioned himself so that God would see him, that he can encounter Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? We can do the same. We can position ourselves because we can't, we can't control the supply of God's grace, but what we can do is place ourselves in the pathway of God's grace. Now, what is, what is God's pathway of dispensing his grace? I've talked about this in numerous occasions. I have to remind us once again. God has grace dispensaries. 
that he offers to us. Three things, and it's going to go up on the screen. God's voice, God's ear, and his body. How do we put ourselves in the pathway of God's grace? We read his word. We pray to him. We have God's ears. And then we fellowship with other believers. See, habitual sin is not a, uh, overcoming habitual sin is not a solo project. We cannot do it by ourselves. We need, God, we need, we need, we need God's truth. We need, we need prayer and we need fellowship of other believers. And these are three pathways of God's grace that we can place ourselves in to experience his grace over and over again. Be in his word. Offer up your prayers. And my application for us today is tell someone what your habitual sin is. Confess it to another person and have them pray with you and for you. We cannot do it alone. And so God makes himself available in these three ways. See, Apostle Paul had a glaring weakness. He called it a thorn in his side. He asked Jesus, he asked God to take it away three times. But God did not remove it. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians verse 12, verse 8 through 9. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Brothers and sisters, what are you struggling with today? What is the reoccurring sin that is plaguing your life? What is the old self that is so hard to kill? We see this and we're so discouraged. But if we can get any encouragement from Paul is that when we do face our weaknesses, and when we experience our weaknesses, that we look to the grace of God, the sufficient grace of God. That is the only hope that we have, brothers and sisters. Not ourselves, not the power of positive thinking, but the grace that is offered to us. May we be in his word. May we seek intimacy in prayer. And please, don't fight your sins by yourself. Tell someone else. Have them pray with you. And to his glory and for his renown, can we be transformed in the likeness of Christ? Let me pray for us.